This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. I'm joined by director of the Stewart Collection, Mary Beebe. As usual, and Mary and I would like to welcome William Wegman for a conversation about and around his 1988 commission for the Stewart Collection, La Jolla Vista View. Bill Wegman has had a unique and diverse career working across many different media, both within and beyond the art world. Since the early 1970s, his work has been exhibited in museums and galleries internationally. Retrospectives of Wegman's work have toured Europe, Asia, and the United States. Recent museum exhibitions have included touring retrospectives in Japan, Korea, and Spain. Being Human, a large-scale survey of over 30 years of Wegman's photographic work was published in fall 2017. A traveling exhibition inspired by the book began a four-year tour at the Rencontre d'Al that includes stops in Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and Europe. Recent exhibitions include Before, On, After, William Wegman and California Conceptualism at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Beyond the confines of the art world, Bill has created film and video works for Saturday Night Live and Nickelodeon, and his video segments for Sesame Street have appeared regularly since 1989. Faye is going to help us with an addition problem. One plus, come on, one plus one equals two. Two balls plus one equals three. One, two, three. Three balls. In 1995, Wegman's film, The Hardly Boys, was screened at the Sundance Film Festival. Bill has been commissioned to create images for a wide range of projects, including the Metropolitan Opera and covers for numerous publications, including The New Yorker. He has appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and with Jay Leno, The David Letterman Show, and The Colbert Report. Bill lives in New York and Maine, where he continues to paint, draw, make videos, and take photographs with his dogs, Flo and Topper. And he joins us from his studio in Maine. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Matthew. When you first met Mary, you were based in New York after having established yourself as an artist in Los Angeles. If we could start before you came to UCSD, way before, and get you to tell us where you came from, maybe a little overview of your youth from Western Mass, I believe, to the Midwest, and how you came to be in Los Angeles and eventually New York. The parts you want to tell us don't feel like you have to tell us your life story. Well, it's a pretty boring life story. I was born on a tiny cot during uh, World War II, a sick and lonely child. I turned to photography early. My mother would help me crank the Hasselblad and so my first pictures were taken, oh no, my watercolors I made. Uh, but my the real interesting leap was out of, um, uh, I only really wanted to draw pictures and play hockey. And I almost didn't go to art school because they didn't have a hockey team. But my high school art teacher persuaded me that I should go to Massachusetts College of Art. And I think that kind of saved my life because I never would have made a college hockey team. But I, but I did make it pretty much as a, as, a, as a pretty good student at Mass College of Art. Went on to grad school, studied painting. Uh, in the 60s, painting was dead. So, of course, I wanted to be alive. And I began to do performances. And to document some of those, I got a camera. 
and made videos and photographs. And then I moved to California, got a dog, and then big changes happened. As soon as I got a dog in 1970, who I named Man Ray, and that sort of caught on, you might say. The sort of sculpture work that Mary is uh, going to be talking about and you um, is something I never really thought about until you guys put it in my head. That's perfect. And so, Mary, uh, tell us about your first encounter with Bill and uh, how did he come to be asked or invited and... Uh, and uh, just tell us the story of, uh, of Bill coming to the campus and uh, exploring the possibilities. I met him first in Los Angeles at a, party, at a party, and I've always admired his work. So I said, have you ever thought about any outdoor sculpture, doing outdoor something outside? And he said, well, yeah, in, in, in grad school. <laughs> And you know, I said, but come on down, because I knew he didn't just do video, and I knew he was a painter as well, and he's become even more of a painter now. But um, anyway, so he came, and we walked around and uh, had a delightful time. We passed a pretty mundane fountain at, um, in the middle of UCSD, it was a circle within a square, and the circle had spouts coming in toward the center. And Bill suggested that we put a little fireman at each spout instead of, and then a burning house in the middle. So they're putting out a burning house. <laughs> anyway, that fountain turned out to be somewhat sacred. So we could, um, we went on. Uh, to pursue other ideas. Uh, but he was full of ideas, which made it loads of fun. And then we sort of found ourselves at the southern edge of the campus, looking out over the scene, which is, it's called La Jolla, but it isn't really the town, the village of La Jolla. It's all this new development. It, we got caught up in what was going on out there. I think there was a flat tire and somebody walking their dog and there was another kind of mishap, I don't know. So Bill started thinking about that because um, here we were on the edge of campus looking uh, toward this suburb, growing suburb, instead of toward the ocean, which is what most people do when they come here. So Bill, do you want to talk about those early ideas or what? <laughs> yes, well, it was a perfect scenic overlook, although the scene wasn't typical. It wasn't the ocean, as you mentioned. It was kind of urban sprawl, and there was little pockets of energy happening. And, and, uh, but it was, it was also fun to just go there and look down over this cliff, kind of, past the highway, off into the distance where you could see some mountains. But before that, it was... Uh, condos and buildings and uh, piles of dirt and, and lots of little activities. And as I went there every week or so to draw, it would evolve and change. Uh, and that was kind of fascinating because you were doing something kind of permanent, an etched copper plate that would be mark this overlook. But every time it would go, it would be, it would be different. I'd have to revise it. You didn't have any concept of wanting to do this 
of when you came to UCSD, it was completely being there that inspired it for you, right? Yes, Matthew, I had to really scramble around for some ideas because I really had none when Mary asked me, uh, although I trusted the fact that having this kind of mind that I would be able to come up with something. Um, and, and, but, but this one seemed to last, the, the idea of, of at the edge of campus to do some installation there. It was kind of a parody idea, but it was actually a beautiful location to keep going back to underneath some Tory pines. And we ended up setting up, making it rather pleasant rather than, um, rather than silly in a way. It was kind of a nice place to go, to go. And that was kind of gratifying. Yeah, that's really true. The, the, uh, and initially your notion was to like make it a sculpture, like literally, like do a kind of relief sculpture of the entire scene, right? That would be a, some sort of gigantic casting. And, uh, and eventually that sort of began to look impossible. Although I remember you saying, I'm sure I could figure it out and do it really well, but let's not do it that way. It doesn't really sound like me saying something like that, but I had to take a deep breath. I said, do I want this to be my life's work? And, uh, and maybe, but I ended up... Actually, after a trip to Hawaii, I saw some in the Big Island. I saw some uh, bronze plaques of uh, the volcano areas, and uh, that seemed to be a solution that, that we could do, is to, is to make the etch these maps into copper, uh, similar to what I saw in Hawaii. And I remember we visited some uh, overlooks in San Diego and the area. We went to um, Torrey Pines Park, but we mm -hmm. also went to um, Point Loma, I think, and uh, to just checking out what was there. And there are a couple of elements that work their way into your thing, like the drinking fountain um, is just a, a, a post with a spigot on it. Cabrillo National Monument was a, a big one because we actually got the, we saw the stone that was being used there. And a lot of that place was uh, built up during the WPA and they used these local rocks. And uh, so, you know, the idea just sort of built on itself using local uh, research and resources. Yeah, we ended up uh, kind of respecting the area rather than going against it. Um, my first idea was to go against it. Uh, the one disrespectful thing that we did was to add telescopes because we could peer into the condos, uh, into people's bedrooms and bathrooms with these high-powered telescopes uh, that, uh, I don't know what happened with, with those, but... Um, it's still there. And it's the same type of telescope that's in these places. It's by a company called Sight Instruments. And sometimes you put quarters into them and they make money, but uh, ours is uh, free of charge. And it was very much a part of this thing, uh, Bill, and we also mocked it up. This, this took a lot of work on your part and uh, just to sort of visualize the whole thing. We built it all out of plywood. You had taken photographs of the entire, of the entire scene uh, and we printed those. We had those printed as, uh, as eight by 10 or bigger, I think, prints and and so each photograph has its own kind of uh, a vanishing point right and then we made put them together or you put them together as a collage and then you drew made your drawing on top of that do you remember all that 
Well, I drew, I think, on uh, tracing paper, right? Which was then uh, photographically made into etching. I don't know, this so long ago, I don't remember, but maybe you remember that part, Matthew. Yeah, you drew it on clear vellum. Uh, and that was because I said you had to, you didn't really want to. And, and I was wrong about that. You could have made a beautiful drawing on paper and, uh, and we could have worked with that. Uh, but uh, I somehow thought, well, it's got to be this uh, because it's going to be this Diazo process. I mean, this was 1988, so it was uh, quite a while ago. We certainly didn't have the, uh, the tools that we have now uh, for reproducing things. Uh, but um, uh, that was uh, how you did it. And then we took that and used it full scale, the original drawing. Uh, we made reproductions of it, but we used that as the, uh, as the pattern or the original for the whole printing process the etching process into, uh, uh, into uh, uh, bronze. And Bill, in the meantime, did some wonderful watercolors, various portraits that he thought might be inserted into this thing of, of uh, anonymous citizens, I think, or more or less, they, he gave them the names. But he thought of all, there, there was all these other things going on. And I have to put in here that when the telescope I did part was presented. I've forgotten to the university who at the university, but I was told that I had to get permission from every household that could be seen through the telescope. <laughs> I said, okay, but I never did it. <laughs> and actually you don't see that much. Uh, there's, they're sort of too far away. Um, I guess I'd like to uh, ask you a bit about what your sense, both of you, what your sense of the evolution of it has been. Uh, and I'll just tell you, uh, you know, my sense, it's, it's just kind of amazing because, the, first of all, this started out as a, as a parody, right? It's a parody because we're looking at urban sprawl and normally a place like that, especially designed in that way, is in a national park and you're looking out at some beautiful natural scene with mountains in the distance and, and lakes and forests and so on. Um, and what we were looking at was uh, Upper La Jolla and the sort of sprawl of Eastern San Diego being constructed back then. Um, and, uh, and so there's that aspect of it being a parody, but it's grown over the years in this very different kind of way. And actually the scene, as opposed to becoming more urban sprawl, has become greener and lovelier because of the fact that the greenery, uh, which is, you know, artificially irrigated, uh, springs up all between the houses and stuff. So, uh, I don't know, Mary, do you want to start with how has it sort of uh, existed over time? How do people experience it? And Bill, I've, I know you've been back. Not recently to see the, the green areas, but, uh, but I did see it some years ago. I'm really happy that, we ha that, I, that I made that piece. I probably wouldn't have thought about it, certainly without you and uh, Matthew leading me around. So it wasn't something that just came out of my head. I see it as a collaboration with the three of us. Certainly Matthew did all, all of the work, but it was really a great project. And I loved going out there and making that drawing and seeing what's changed and how it's evolved. So let's go do another one someplace. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> one thing about that site is that... Um, it's like the, you know, if you're walking across campus, that's where you bump into the edge of the campus and you have this scene. So it's like, okay, you know, here's one idea and here's another idea on the way. And then boom, 
you know, uh-oh, I guess I'd better come up with another idea because there's nowhere else to walk. <laughs> the end of the earth, like so many people have come to San Diego to escape the farthest corner of the U.S., you know, to sort of renew their dreams or or whatever. But to me, the piece, the bronze plaque, has become a kind of marker of what it looked like in 1987. And so since then, the, a huge Mormon church has been built, and so you can look at what it actually looked like in uh, and so long ago, and and you can visualize, or you can kind of see all the things that have been that have changed and been added, and yet, you know, it's a photograph of a time, but it's also impossible to photograph. You know, you don't. It's really kind of wonderful in that way because photographing it, um, it's it's very difficult to get a sense of the whole thing from a photograph of it and to go but to go out there and sit and contemplate like we did has become um a, a popular thing to do at the university because it's right between the dance building and a and a and a, a complex of theaters and the, the theater people use it for uh rehearsing or you know going over their lines or whatever, or just having lunch. And people have gotten married out there. So it's really, you know, been a part of, become a part of the campus life. And uh, and it's very much appreciated uh, that we made it into a nice area with tables and benches and chairs and a drinking fountain. Um, so it's not only for picnics, but it's also for weddings and and rehearsals and whatever people want. I'll accept that sacrifice, a certain visual power for a uh, uh, sense of goodness and and sweetness. Uh, and sort of that, that won out, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> it also saved its own site, I think, and uh, because the buildings that have been, there are about four buildings that have been put up uh, for the whole theater area and a dance building, and they've all been designed around the site. And so it kind of claims its territory and... Uh, and we actually built it up. We brought in Earth and moved Earth so that it was built up. We raised it up slightly um, before uh, before building the uh, pedestal for the panorama. So it became more like a, a promontory, in a way. Yes. And uh, as you're, but you're looking with your back to the ocean, so it's a parody in a way too. It dawns on you. Wait a minute. This is um, this is something different. You know, it's not every. Uh, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of little secrets across that drawing. It's this very intricate drawing that has all kinds of things in there that you've uh, written in, including you indicated where Mary Beebe's home at the time was. And what else, Mary? What else, Bill? What do you remember having written in there? Remember the an owl came by and we decided to make a little uh, plaque with an owl on it because it seemed to be good luck? Yeah, we went out there to de- try to decide a name Right, and as we were out there, an owl flew over, and so you made a wonderful plaque with your dog looking up at the owl, and that is the identification plaque for the piece. And uh, it and and we decided La Jolla Vista View, 
which is sort of a uh, play on words because vista and view are the same thing. And uh, so we were amused again. <laughs> Bill, in the, in the whole bigger scheme of your practice, uh, quote unquote, um, this was kind of at the time where you, or maybe you had already sort of uh, uh, branched away or back into or towards uh, this uh, a dead thing uh, called painting. Um, I know there's, a, there's this great little passage where you say around 1980, it became apparent that painting was actually not dead. It was rising from the grave and that you began to have, as you called them, embarrassing urges. Because so many of your paintings actually have been panoramic and been spawned by a postcard image or two postcard images that you connect. Um, could you talk about that a bit and, and maybe talk about whether uh, this was uh, sort of helped to instigate that or, or whether you came with that in mind uh, and the whole idea of, uh, you know, expanding an image into a panorama? I always loved to draw and always did. And it was sort of painful to give it up, even though it was necessary. And I was really glad that I did and happy that I ended up doing what I did. But when I became more like a middle-aged artist that had plenty of recognition, I sort of just veered off to do these sort of things that were more self-indulgent, like drawing and, and painting. And uh, I thought I knew how to paint, but I actually didn't. Uh, even though I majored in it in art school. So I had to learn how to do it. And by by actually getting the stuff together and doing it, I ended up, I think one critic said, it looks like I put art history in a blender because I ended up reinventing all these things. And certainly the panorama, when I came to adding postcards, which I did first in 1993, and started to extend that horizon line, that did sort of bring us back to... Uh, the point where it refers to La Jolla Vista view in some way, because uh, you know these postcards keep being added on and on and on, almost like this, like this plaque that we made. So it was fun to remember that and to think back to that moment. In terms of learning how to paint again, that's not an easy thing to have to do. It match up your painting with a postcard, and and not like mess up the postcard or mess up the way they match. I mean, that's like a kind of pretty challenging, isn't it? Well, you know, I used to copy pictures out of the Book of Knowledge and the, and the World Book when I was seven or eight years old. I, I loved uh, drawing pictures of Indians and birds and hockey players and God knows what. But I would always look at something and, and, and then extend it. But with a postcard, I would paste it onto a board and then just paint the the rest of it that you didn't see. Actually, the first time I did that is my uncle gave me a, a watercolor uh, of a Provincetown scene. And so one of my oil paintings I made is I used that painting, the corner of it, and extended what I thought he didn't put in. Um, and that's what I like to do. You look out the window, you can see what, imagine what you can see just outside the window frame. Uh, and, and so the postcard is like that window where you have to make up what is outside that window. That's one of the games that I mm -hmm. still play today in painting. Yeah, and you made some prints where you have six versions or of one postcard, right? That's right, yes. I, yes, it was... Uh, 
it was from like a Playboy magazine or something like that. And uh, I, I made them all into composers like uh, Chopin and Scriabin and Foray. And it seems like you have more than one way of drawing. You have like several different styles of drawing and drawing seems to be also kind of the springboard for everything for you. Is that a fair statement? It is. When I first started to draw again in 1972, I didn't want them to look like studies for anything. So I made them all on typing paper with a number two pencil, the most common art material or any uh, common material, uh, uh, ordinary pencil and an ordinary piece of paper with just these lines. And But then I, I uh, sort of started daydreaming and added ink and then I added better paper and then and then it just went and went and went so it sort of lost my manifesto which was very important to me uh, to, when I started to draw um, but I just sort of let it go and let it fly but so now my drawings can be anything one of the things that I noticed in some said oh you should do like New Yorker cartoons but there there's always a style, uh, and you see the style, you know the kind of humor that's going to be delivered to you by this cartoonist that you saw in The New Yorker. But with me, when I change styles all the time, you couldn't really get ready for the kind of uh, present I was going to send your way. You've done New Yorker covers, right? But have you ever sort of thought it would be interesting to play with that cartoon idea in a traditional place like that? I really wanted to bust through that that uh, style problem. Um, so I really didn't want, I didn't want or need that. Sounds kind of arrogant, but that's, that's what I thought at the time. I wanted to be separate. I didn't want to say, oh, look, you look like Thurber. And I, I didn't want that. No, I'm not Thurber. Oh, these yeah. are kind of like Matisse. Well, Matisse is not too shabby, but I didn't want to look like Matisse either. So it, it, being an artist, you know, especially along the way, you have to kind of squirm out of these labels now and then. And that's what I found myself doing always with the drawing. Well, it seems like you've actually always been an outlier in terms of your work. Um, and, uh, and especially because of uh, the dogs and because of the photography work and work on television and all these other media. I wanted to ask you, and maybe I'll just think of a couple of artists to mentioned John Baldessari and Kim McConnell. I think when you left Los Angeles, uh, uh, left your studio to John and Baldessari took over your studio for many, many years in, in Santa Monica. And I, I know that you knew Kim pretty well from Holly Solomon Gallery, is that right? Yes, Matthew, yes, I knew both of them. Uh, Baldess John Baldessari, I thought I would be moving back to L.A., but I didn't, and he just inherited my studio. He just uses these tables that I remember, and he did all of his projects there. And what about Kim? Well, Kim is, is a very generous person, as you know, and really a wonderful person to, to, uh, to visit, and he would, he would show me lots of things. So Kim's a great guy. My, my work was, not, was probably more like Baldessari's than like Kim's. Uh, but now my work is more like Kim's and Baldessari's, so I caught up with <laughs> And uh, I left John. Goodbye, John. Uh, hello, Kim. I remember Kim sort of participating and visiting uh, while you were figuring out the project at the campus. And uh, I have this vision of him. It's the first time I really, I think, got to know 
Kim McConnell. There were a couple of palm trees that had been cut down for whatever reason. And he, uh, he grabbed uh, one of these uh, palm, giant palm log stumps and, uh, and rolled it away. And then we heaved it up into the uh, back of his Citroen station wagon. I don't know, McConnell seems also like a kind of uh, artist that uh, is uh, completely himself in the way that you are. We should say that Kim was on the faculty at UCSD so he, for many, many years, so he was around, and that was, was part of the fun of getting them together. Uh, it's fun to, when faculty sort of participate a little bit in our projects. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, showing with Holly was sort of larger than life and sort of hard to escape from. But uh, both Kim and I managed to, to do that quite well. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Holly loved my painting and uh, really encouraged it. She uh, practically stuck the brush in my hand and was really an ally for my painting. And, and, and certainly Kim was too. And we should mention Holly Solomon's gallery was really at the kind of the forefront of uh, getting beyond minimalism. Uh, and uh, this whole uh, range of new possibilities of uh, being invented by artists. I remember Kiki Smith actually saying that McConnell's work, and I'm sure yours, uh, made her feel like there were uh, all kinds of new possibilities uh, in this world of the 1970s where everything seemed to be so minimal and masculine and dark. Elizabeth Murray was one of them, too, I think, yeah. who helped to step out beyond that. Just persistently doing what she did through all the whole era of minimalism. Well, the Stewart collection is really amazing for having uh, this variety, you know, with artists like me who could do something that that wasn't in uh, in my wheelhouse, let's say, and, uh, and, and having it happen. So it's pretty amazing. <laughs> we like to listen to artists. <laughs> I shouldn't let you go before asking about, and I don't really have a, a question prepared, but uh, the, your dogs and, and how um, uh, that worked its way into your work. How is your relationship with uh, the dogs beginning with Man Ray and Fay Ray? Uh, sort of evolved in uh, in your uh, in your work over these many years. Well, you know, with Man Ray, he just went. I went everywhere with him, and uh, when I was trying to set up the video camera, he was like a hunting dog. He wants to be around the equipment. You know, he wants to hop in the and see you try to figure out how to load your gun, so to speak. So he was always right in my face. First time I turned it on, there he was, and uh, he had a way of sort of taking me, the sort of narcissistic me, out of, out of it um, and into something, I don't know, less obnoxious and more viewable. Uh, most, a lot of the artists for my generation that put the camera on themselves, um, it, there's something kind of too, too me-ish about it. So, so that's what he led me, you know, out in a way. And with my next dog, Faye, she was uh, not so good with video, but she was great with photography and loved 
to work. She was uh, an amazing model. And when she had puppies, I had a whole family. I had like an acting troupe. And then, then I started to do the videos and they ended up on Sesame Street and places like that. So I had like an acting troupe. One. Two. Three, four. But then when I started to paint in the mid 80s, um, Batty, Faze, my second dog's daughter that I love so much, would watch me doing something on a wall. And it would really perplex her. What, what's Bill doing scrubbing on a wall? Uh, so I made a funny video of her uh, watching me pretending to paint. I was actually drilling something to a wall. So she, so she didn't really get, my dogs didn't really get the painting thing. Um, and they still don't. Like, well, why are you doing that? They'd much rather be in front of the camera. Uh, you never use uh, Photoshop, right? They're never uh, sort of constructed. And then you uh, use this amazing uh, facility and this Polaroid uh, camera. Uh, this large format Polaroid camera, which of course now is a part of history because Polaroid is gone, and you and, it, and then you sort of became uh, digital, but you still don't use these tools that uh, everybody feels like they sort of can or should use, like uh, Photoshop. I'd love to hear about the Polaroid thing first of all, uh, and then and then that evolution from uh, from these still images that were like so difficult and expensive to stage in this huge format. Uh, how has that uh, been for you? Dr. Lannon had his engineers make this camera in 1978 to take actual size portraits one-to-one. -one. That was the reason for it, to make uh, life-size headshots. And after they photographed and terrified the executive wives and so forth, with because the, they're very unflattering, they started to, as one guy, Elko Wolf, I believe his name was, invited artists to come and, and experiment with it. And uh, eventually I did. I didn't at first because I, I didn't work in color. And I didn't work bigger than 1114. I had all these rules. But eventually I went and then I, and I loved it. It was just an amazing experience to see this thing in instant, which was 70 seconds. Um, and to kind of build a piece. You can never plan it. You had to bring stuff and just start to experiment and see what would happen. And of course, your question about Photoshop, I wanted the dogs to be, uh, the dog man Ray, to be there um, and, you know, to, to do, to retouch or do tricks on it seemed like beside the point. You wanted them to be cooperating, almost like a a theater piece in a way that, and in fact, it was even more amazing when people would walk in and they would see the dog posing, being still, balancing something, doing these things. It kind of bring up people would actually gasp at uh, at the seriousness and intensity and the compatibility of the dog to to this experience. I think one of the reasons was the dog was elevated. It was a whole room that you were in. It was you didn't sneak up on the dog. The dog was there, raised up to the level of the camera. The camera didn't move. You moved the things to the camera. So it was kind of a stage set made for that experience. 
Now, when that all ended in like 2007 was the last time I did the Polaroid camera, I started to do the digital, but I had a hard time because, because Photoshop is just, it's possible. Um, but I never did it. And I think you can really tell that I don't Photoshop. The dog's still there. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's an issue anymore, at least for me, because I don't really have to prove anything with it. It's, uh, it's, it's part of what I do. The dogs love it. Um, they, some dogs require it, and other dogs will just go along with it. And if a dog doesn't want to do something, then I wouldn't do it. You know, like Faye Ray hated metal, so I didn't put metal around her. She would lean out of the picture if you brought in a piece of metal for some reason. She didn't like loud noises, so everyone that was helping me had to be tiptoe around. Uh, I loved working within the sort of peculiar personalities. Uh, these two that I have now are different. I would never be able to do the dog alphabet because they won't lie flat. Uh, Flo will let me put stuff on her head. Topper won't. He'll knock it off. So, uh, yeah, so Flo will wear the hats. But Topper looks great on things. So he's great at being tall. It's named Topper for a good reason. He likes to be on top. So I sort of work with, within what, what they can do and what they're good at, and then sort of go beyond uh, as necessary. Mary, do you have any uh, additional thoughts or uh, uh, stories or uh, questions uh, about the piece? I know that it's, it's really been adopted by uh, the whole theater district, it's called. And so the, the dancers and... Uh, and everyone at Loya Playhouse, uh, they've had their events there. There's this uh, wonderful garden that uh, evolved uh, around the backside of the uh, original La Jolla Playhouse building, the Mando Weiss Theater. And uh, it was uh, designed and, and actually planted by this, um, uh, this uh, uh, technician at the Playhouse named Ian. It's called Ian's Garden. Uh, Ian passed away from uh, AIDS uh, sometime in uh, the 90s, I think, or the 2000s. And that garden has worked its way around and sort of become uh, integrated to La Jolla Vista View in this quite wonderful way. And so the plantings have changed over time. Seeing the way the piece changes over time has just been um, a wonderful thing for me uh, because it's so vast, you know, and uh, it's so intimate at the same time. Uh, Mary, uh, do you have any thoughts about it that way? I love the fact that it's a drawing with notations. You know, the the bronze plat is it's huge, but there's all kinds of things in there, like a Tijuana this way, a, a pile of dirt being mystery dirt, um, student, you know, airplanes. There's all kinds of little in jokes. Now leashing mm-hmm. instead of leasing, um, a very a Chicago pizzeria, um, and there, um, you know, things have changed. There are different stores in a lot of the places and and different houses, but uh, a lost developments there, and uh, I love that. I've always loved Bill's drawings. Once um, I. Years ago, I think, but way before we did this piece, Bill. Well, maybe it couldn't have been. Anyway, I was in your studio. Was in that old church or synagogue or something in New York, 
and uh, and uh, way downtown. And I was there. We were, you know, visiting, ready to go to dinner or something. And you handed me a box uh, of drawings and said, "Just pick one of these. Pick any. Pick anything you want." And I told you this the other day, but I picked this one that has a picture of a bird on a limb. And it says down below, bird on a limb. And then it says, after Broncusi. And then it says, way after. <laughs> it's one of the most wonderful things I own. And I'm never giving it back, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you both. Uh, thank you, Bill, especially for taking up, uh, letting us take up uh, some of your time up there in your... Thank Atlas, your, too, for putting this together. Yes, and your son, Atlas, for uh, being the technological wizard, which uh, uh, you apparently are not. And, uh, and uh, so uh, thank you so much. And it's great to see you. You look just the same as you did in 1988. That's what I think. Very recognizable, both of you. Wonderful. <laughs> There are a few questions that have come through here, and uh, I guess I'll uh, ask them. There is one question that is uh, uh, sort of more for Mary and maybe me, but uh, let's just start with that, and then we'll move to uh, to some questions for Bill. The the and Bill, you know what whatever you may think of this, uh, there are trees and buildings that have come up uh, sort of everywhere and are blocking the site uh, or the 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 line of sight. Um, is this a problem, or does this work, or how? Uh, what do you think of that, Mary? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, you can see a path going to it from the road, and there we've—they've made another path to the dance studio. The question is about when you're standing there and looking at the scenic view, oh, I see. and then there are trees that have sort of grown up everywhere. Um, and, uh, and is that a problem? I don't think so. It's part of the change. You know, the university had cut some down sort of lower that were growing up kind of high, but, uh, so that resolved that, which wasn't much of an issue anyway, but, uh, uh, we watch out and, um, it's hard to anticipate, um, the university doing anything else down there. The change is, is really remarkable. Someday, uh, maybe a student will put together archival photographs of it from the beginning uh, through its middle ages to today. And it, the transformation is remarkable, the, the amount of green that's come up. Um, and also, you know, it's interesting, and I'm sure, Bill, you thought of this from day one, um, uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, this transformation is totally artificial. Um, the greenery is like totally artificial because all of that uh, water comes from Northern California and the Sierra snowpack, which is disappearing because of climate change. Um, so any thoughts there, Bill? None whatsoever, but we talked about <laughs> that earlier and uh, I pretended yeah. to have some ideas then, but they vanished. Uh, let's see, there's a, there's a question about uh, about dogs and about humor and about Polaroids. How many did you have to sort of throw away to get a good take? And, uh, and how did that work? And did you destroy them or have you sort of kept them in a secret 
place, the outtakes, and uh, how, is, how have they held up in terms of color and uh, you know, the quality of the colors? Yeah, well, they changed the uh, formulas over the years and certain batches and years are more stable than others. I had some from the beginning, 1979, 1980, that are fine and some from uh, 2003 that are practically vanished. So uh, it's, it's uh, interesting for sure. But I love the quality and it's so specific and so not not really copyable. Uh, when you, I, I went over all of the work um, two years ago, took them out of storage, looked at everything, documented it, and found, of course, lots that I found more interesting than I, than I remembered. And that became kind of the basis for this show and book, Being Human, um, because I realized that well, here's, here's the issue. You, I'd go to Boston uh, once a month for three days and then go back again the next month. So I forget what I was doing. I ended up doing so many different things. So there's no, it's not like the artist studio where there's continuity. Uh, when I come into my painting studio, the painting I worked on in the morning is still there at night and it's there the next day. Polaroid, like a month later that I'm back in that studio. Um, and, and I kept coming up with new things. Uh, and that's, I think, incredibly interesting and very unique. Well, there's a question for Mary and Matthew. Have you uh, ever met um, any of uh, Bill's beautiful dogs? I know I haven't, but Mary, uh, maybe you have. And then the question, the part of the question for Bill is, what is it about Weimaraners that makes them uh, so special and uh, and uh, unique as opposed to other breeds. I've seen a lot of them. <laughs> I've met most of Bill's dogs, I believe. Um, you met the whole acting troupe, huh? I think so. And there was one time that I went by to see them, Bill and Christine and Atlas and Lola, that there was a whole uh, litter sort of in a kind of playpen <laughs> in the living room. And they were just adorable. Uh, but I think, Bill, you gave them away or sold them or something, you know, a lot of them and kept uh, uh, wh whoever you chose out of that batch. I don't really know, but. Well, I've raised, uh, I've raised a few litters and, um, but the two that I have now were from a breeder in the Syracuse area. I have a, a Faye, a Flo rather, and uh, her half brother Topper, and they're about a year apart, so. So uh, Flo, who I keep calling Faye, is uh, now nine and Topper is eight. Wow. Um, but the thing about Weimaraners that I've been able to use, I think, is that they're, they're gray. I've said this before, and gray goes with anything. So I can, I, can, <laughs> I can sort of build from there. I can change them and alter them. Uh, their nickname is the Gray Ghost. That's because they, they inhabit other characters. So that's why they keep emerging and transforming. The other thing is basically they really like to do it. And uh, if they didn't, I'd be, I'd be too tired of it by now if they weren't so enthusiastic. So they, they, it breaks your heart. They want to work so much. I have been painting a lot now, but I brought my camera out the other day and uh, flow is just bonkers to get in the picture. <laughs> Absolutely. It's pretty hilarious. Well, I remember once we were doing some Stuart collection videoing in your 
studio in New York, which was really nice of you to let us do that. And uh, was it Topper who was just dying to get into the picture? <laughs> anyway, I did this piece in San Diego to get away from the dogs for at least a few days. Yeah, they they compete too. I'd have to kind of corral one if I want want to only work with with one. Or sometimes what I did is uh, is I is I put Topper if I'm not using him just outside of the frame, so he thinks he's working too. Bill, do you use a what camera do you use now? Is it a great big thing like uh, it was for the Polaroids? And it, is it uh, you have to raise up the dog, or do you just use your iPhone, or what do you use? No, I use a Hasselblad with a fancy back, which has X number of megapixels more than you have, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, you can you can make really big prints w- with it because of the uh, the image is so good. I'm used to using a Hasselblad back before I even went with a Polaroid. I used a Hasselblad and uh, made my own prints. And so you are your your own photographer. You do all of that stuff and just send them out for development. I, I used to do my own prints, and except for color, but in black and white, I could print. But I, I don't do any of the. Uh, I, my assistant, who's worked with me for twenty-five or, or more years, Jason, does all of the digital work and and uh, keeps everything working. Here's a question about about humor, which you may or may not want to answer, um, uh, but uh, I'll do it in two parts. Here, there's sort of two questions about it. Um, do you think about humor as a kind of a structure? Uh, 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 do you think about how it works sort of structurally? And, uh, and the other part is uh, maybe a bit more fun. Uh, how often have you had an idea, tried to execute it, and ultimately realized that it wasn't working out and you just had to scrap it? Uh, what do you do? Do you scrap it or do you improve it? Well, that, that's sort of a question I think that really is interesting to answer in terms of my early video where uh, I would just set up the, the monitor where I could see myself kind of obliquely. I would record something, and if I would start to perspire and be really embarrassed, I would know that it was terrible. And uh, <laughs> so I would try to sort of zone into this monitor, and uh, humor sort of came out that way. I think it had to do with endings. You know, to get out of the frame, I'd have to do something that said this piece ends. So uh, rather than having the the video go for hours and hours, uh, which some of the early videos did. Um, I liked them to be maybe 30 seconds or a minute or just as long as they had to be, the longest being maybe two minutes or so. So, uh, and then with drawings can be funny too because you can leave that page, but paintings can't be funny. And that's why I had trouble going back to painting because I work funny, but how funny didn't seem to work with an oil painting, it seemed to be the wrong subject, not a suitable subject for painting. So it's always been a struggle for me in the beginning when I started to paint was what would be that suitable subject. Well, you're just a funny person too. I mean, you have a great sense of humor and that's what makes it fun to work with you and makes your work fun and, you know, it, it's serious beyond being fun and, and funny. Yeah, that's really a deep question, though, what makes somebody funny and somebody not funny. So that's too boring to answer. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So the question about a, a structure for humor is uh, you just put that one aside and just sort of let it happen, I guess. Right. 
Yeah. Well, the, the, I guess the, my humor tends to be uh, about structure and about reversing it and inverting it and spinning it around and, uh, you know, taking a form and, and uh, sort of inverting it. I think that's basic to a lot of my early photos anyways. I guess parody is another thing, um, but that's sort of a shallow thing. So I've used parody maybe to begin with, but hopefully to transcend that into something else. Like I think we did with a Stewart collection piece with the overlook. To, it started to be kind of a parody of a one of those scenic installations, but uh, its own thing. Yeah, it takes on a life of its own. And then it sort of ideas get built upon it or it, it uh, reveals things uh, and uh, you sort of have to let it go and uh, it works really beautifully that way. And Mary, I think a lot of what we've done over the years is actually try to scramble away from expectations about public art and, uh, and uh, find things that are uh, just unexpected where, where art doesn't you know, act as a kind of punctuation for architecture uh, and, uh, and where it's not decoration, um, wouldn't you say? Right, I would say we're, we're not ever decorating the campus in a cosmetic way. We're trying to provide provocative and perhaps, uh, well, hopefully memorable um, experiences for as, you know, many people who just want to engage with them. But it is, um, has been fun to think about artists who are not, not known for public art and their work in public places. And a lot of um, the art, our artists have done their first outdoor thing. But public art in most places for me is kind of stereotypical. And uh, so engaging artists who think differently and who think of who think about art rather than the bureaucracy um, or pleasing the bureaucracy is really important to, I think to both of us and uh, we've avoided the UCSD bureaucracy except for poor Jane who deals with it <laughs> um, uh, but well we deal with it plenty I think yeah, um, well you're right and, and it's not an enemy in some ways, you know, not being and when we've said this before, I think, but not being able to do something uh, sort of makes it better. And some of the works are are real sanctuaries. I think, Bill, your piece is that way. It's, it's so out of the way. You know, it's something that's discovered only if you're really uh, kind of wandering around the periphery of things. And um, I think it's wonderful to come upon it uh, and to have this view of the larger world and um, and yet, you know, be in this kind of intimate space where you can just hang out and sit at a table or, or do whatever. Um, spaces like that become more and more important, I think, on the campus. Yeah, I couldn't that's, agree. That's nice to hear. Yeah. I guess I'd like to ask you both, because we're both in, in this, in this uh, you know, we're all in this uh, terrible crisis of uh, the virus. Uh, and uh, what that has been like, uh, on the one hand, Mary for the Stewart Collection and Bill in your world and uh, your world as an artist and exhibiting and working and uh, escaping maybe to places like Maine. Uh, either of you want to talk about that and how the world is different now? 
as it were, I mean, the campus itself is really deserted. There are minimal, minimal students and people around. So it feels kind of spooky, but you still hear, can encounter these works that are kind of a surprise. And sometimes you hear them before you see them. And so, you know, it's still a wonderful place to walk. Bill, any thoughts on, uh, on the current situation for you? Well, for me, I, you know, I, got, I had to leave New York, which I got out early March, went to my studio upstate. But I'm away from my photo studio, my photo equipment, and my photo assistant. So I'm concentrating almost entirely on uh, painting, although I did bring my cameras and I have and will continue to, to do that. Mostly it's been painting, being a sort of reclusive artist uh, away from everyone, which I, I'm kind of thriving and really, except for worrying about everybody and feeling bad about you know, the world. Uh, it's been quite enjoyable for me to uh, to isolate and just concentrate on my work. We should say we've just published a brand new uh, book that covers all the existing works in one coming work um, or on the in progress work. And uh, we're quite pleased with it. And anybody can go on to the, our website, stuartcollection.ucsd or the UC Press website. Or you can email us and we'll tell you how to connect. That was a way to try and end on an up note. I want to thank you both and Bill especially. I'm lucky I have Christine and Atlas to uh, bring this forward for you. Christine is saying hello and goodbye. Thanks to the whole family, dogs included. Family affair. You guys look great. Thanks. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.